Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi there and welcome to this next episode of Cross Section. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jo Evans and I'm joined today by Danny Webster and Alicia Edmund and we're here to help you navigate the news, the culture around us as we seek to follow Jesus. It's another week, another week of headlines. This week, Finland and Sweden formally submitted applications to join NATO as the war in Ukraine rages on. It's been announced that a Tory MP has been accused of rape and is currently undergoing investigation. And on a slightly lighter note, the Queen attended the Platinum Jubilee Horse Show Spectacular and seemed to be having a great old time. You'll notice Peter Linus isn't with us this week. He's on the road on a special EA road trip. So first story this week, the story that has been dominating the headlines, it's once again the cost of living crisis. Danny, it's been announced that the inflation, the inflation is at a rate of 9%, but what does that actually mean? Well, to put it very simply, things cost 9% more than they did this time last year. So there are two different rates of measuring inflation. 9% is the consumer price index. And that basically takes a stock of a range of different items that we spend money on, from food to electricity to transport, and it assesses how much that's increased. Now, 9% is a lot. That is since the the current in, index from the Bank of England has been running since 1997, it's never been that high. We've got to reach back uh, much earlier than that to see a time when inflation was that high. So it, it is really quite high. And it's also probably not the highest it's going to get to. It's probably going to get higher over the next few months. Uh, it probably will top 10%. Now, the government and the Bank of England are optimistic that over the next couple of years, it will come under control and be back at 2%, which is generally the target level before too long. But it means that, and we're feeling it, everything's more expensive, whether that's food, electricity, um, buying a bag of coffee, it's uh, a pound more expensive than it was a few months ago. We notice it. And that is impacting everyone. So that has sparked all sorts of conversations about how can we help uh, people, how can the government help people to deal with the real struggles that they're facing with the cost of living at the moment? Yeah, I I know it's, I I am well aware it's not one of life's necessities, but my Netflix subscription has just gone up a full pound. Bit of a hit there. Tory MP uh, Rachel McLean said this week, But over the long term, we need to have a plan to grow the economy and to make sure that people are able to protect themselves better, whether that's been by taking on more hours or moving to a better paid job. And Richard uh, Madley on Good Morning Britain said this week uh, that there is wisdom in this. He referred to the saying, God helps people who help themselves. Alicia, what's your take on those sorts of comments? Mm. It's rare that I get behind and support a government minister in what they're saying. Often I'm I'm challenging them to do more. But I feel that uh, Rachel McLean's co- uh, comments were somewhat misrepresented in their meaning. She was interviewed on Sky News uh, talking about the cost of living and she was talking more about what the government is seeking to do longer term, that it has a focus on growing the economy, it has focus on building jobs, uh, uh, investment in local communities and equipping 
developing local authorities. Uh, and so the, her comments, as you've read them, have been sound bites across Twitter, across Good Morning Britain, as a sense of uh, another Conservative MP being somewhat insensitive to the needs and challenges of families and households across the country. I think what it does show is that uh, the general public, the media believe that the government should be doing more than what they actually are uh, at this moment of time. Uh, and of course, we're going to talk more about some of the policy proposals that are coming through in Parliament. Uh, but it's definitely a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. There are great needs for now. And some of the, the kind of Conservative Party's agenda is more long term. Uh, with regards to Richard Madley's quote uh, and comment, I would say that's a misrepresentation of the gospel, um, that God didn't come to save those who could help themselves, but quite the opposite. Uh, he came to save those who were completely uh, full of sin and incapable of salvation. And actually, as a Christian, it's a model for us of how do we give generously? How do we use our capital, our intellect, our resources to serve those most in need in our local communities? That's the model that we should be following. Clumsy comments from MPs. Uh, I think Rachel McLean was clumsy rather than anything more than that. I think there's another MP, uh, Lee Anderson, who was encouraging people to cook meals for 30 pence a meal, which uh, I saw a chef had sought to cook a week's worth of meals on that and basically said, you can do it, but it's really rubbish. Like, you're not going to eat well. It's not going to be nutritious. You're not going to have good portions. So if you think you can live with pasta and tomato sauce uh, seven days a week, then yes, you probably can live on a 30p a meal, but it's not going to be a healthy lifestyle. So I, I, to be honest, MPs spend their life in the public eye and sometimes they do say things that don't seem particularly uh, sensible. Uh, but I think it is a is a complex area that uh, people are looking to the government to do something. Yeah, and, and just every every time I start reading through stories and reading headlines, it it does almost bring on a literal headache because the problem is stating the obvious, but the problem is enormous, and it it feels like there isn't really there's not that sort of silver bullet solution. There's been lots of articles about the windfall tax. There's this windfall tax debate. Um, Danny, once again, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to explain that to uh, to the layperson. So, so the idea of a windfall tax is simply that it taxes companies or a group of companies when they have received money that perhaps there was a windfall that wasn't expected, that wasn't normal. So in this context, it's the fact that because energy prices globally have gone up, energy companies are doing better. So even if even if the percentage that they're taking is no greater, the fact that energy prices have gone up and then they're selling that on, it means that they are making more profit. So you have seen stories over the last few weeks and months of huge profits from energy companies, uh, which when people are facing gas and electricity price increases feels astounding, frankly. You think, well, if you're turning profits of £10 billion, how come our prices are still going up by £600, £700? So the idea of a windfall tax is for the government to then tax these companies in a one-off way that says, Frankly, you didn't earn this. You got all this extra money because of circumstances that were outside of your control. So really, we're going to tax you and take some of that money. It is an opportunity for the government to get some money. And they can... It's a one-off measure, usually. 
Uh, now, it's happened in the past. It's not the first time it's been talked about. The idea is, as a one-off, the government can bring in some extra funds, which, in this case, they would then be able to use to assist and provide some financial assistance. To- mm. And just bringing it back to that kind of political policy conversation, uh, there was a vote uh, brought forward by uh, the Labour Party just on this topic, uh, that the government should be putting forward an emergency budget to kind of meet the needs to support households further to introduce a windfall tax. Uh, It was discussed at length and voted down. So this is really a challenge for the Conservative Party in that they're believing that this isn't the right step, it's not the next move, even though it's very popular opinion uh, in the sense of if uh, energy companies are turning over profits in their millions, potentially billions, surely there is a moral uh, compass of the government to to tax that and, and look out for those most vulnerable in the need. There is a growing sense that the government will do something. I f- it feels unsustainable for the government not to do anything further. But the question is what? What's going to help the most? Uh, the government uh, cancelled the planned rise on fuel duty earlier this year and yet fuel prices have continued to rise so it's wiped out any benefit that could have brought it yeah it has cost the treasury billions so there's a fear that actually the government do things and then they're just throwing money after a problem but it is challenging like just this week it became apparent that um the government couldn't change the amount the benefits were increased by because the computer said no so uh, benefits go up by the rate of inflation, but that is set, I think it's based on the November rate. So they went up by 3%. Now inflation's at 9%. So the rate that benefits are going up is far less than the cost that people are facing to buy everyday goods. But apparently the system is so antiquated that once a year they basically can change the number and that's it. Once they've done that, they can't do that again. So they are looking for mechanisms yeah. to, to help. But... The options uh, before the government are limited. The Bank of England are likely to increase interest rates further. But for homeowners with mortgages, that's likely to increase their costs as well, even if it does help bring inflation under control. Yeah, there there is a big, there's an obvious question of responsibility that's being thrown around a lot. So there's, in, in my kind of social media circles anyway, the overwhelming feeling is that the government needs to be doing more but you also hear terms thrown around like the government shouldn't be a, a nanny state. And then also I've seen this week that Jamie Oliver, famous chef, if you've not heard of him, look him up, got some great recipes, but he's organising a peaceful protest outside of par- a parliament on Friday, the day you're listening to this podcast. We're currently in Thursday afternoon. You will be in Friday at some point. But he's organising this protest because the government's basically done some U-turning on strategies to combat obesity in the UK, which they're kind of, they're they're sort of saying the reasons for that is because of the rise of cost of living. Jamie Oliver, amongst many others, is saying that's pretty nonsensical. And yeah, but then Jamie Oliver is being criticised because he's a millionaire asking the government to, to ship out more money. And and then there's the question of what should the church, what should the charity sector and Christians specifically, what should we be doing in this space right now on an organisational level? Do either of you have any uh, have any bright ideas on that one? I think it has to be everyone. Like I think there are levers that government can pull. I think the government should look at what levers they can pull. 
I think people who have been blessed with incredible wealth should be incredibly generous. But actually, to be honest, apart from the literally the extremely wealthy, the amount that they can give won't actually solve societal level problems. It can make make a difference to individuals. And then actually we as individuals um, should seek to be generous in the ways that that we can be. I think it's really easy to look at bills and think, oh, my energy prices are going up. Actually, I can think that is happening and I don't particularly like it. But actually, I am in a situation where I can still be generous towards others. So I think we should be and we should try and find those opportunities and know that we can't do it alone. But actually, it doesn't mean we can opt out of responsibility altogether. And just a short contribution. The church uh, exists in pretty much every uh, constituency across the country and so are well placed to support and serve, which many are doing through food but banks through giving kind of debt advice support financial assistance but I guess my challenge to the church to myself is that we need to lend both our not our resources but our voice to political and long-term policy changes that deals with the systemic challenges uh, that individual communities face in terms of what keeps them in bound to uh, low income jobs what keeps them bound in terms of the decisions and choices that they are forced to make in kind of their nutrition and eating um, habits communities that I'm from every other shop is a chicken shop which contributes to unhealthy eating uh, I should be uh, on the door or constantly talking to my local authority about what they're doing to encourage healthy eating and whole wellness of living and I think that's the challenge for us as the church to 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 do the policy and advocacy work longer term yeah that's that's a lot of wisdom there this year fried chicken is my my number one weakness but but yeah that's very helpful so as, as is sometimes the case, this isn't the most satisfying of conversations where we, we can bring in the Christian faith and find the perfect answer. But it's good, it's good to think through these things. It's good as Christians to be informed on the difficult um, situations that, that our country is going through and be able to add something to those conversations. Because alongside all the practical steps, ultimately as Christians, we have, we have a hope that that will never cease or change or dry up with that eternal hope in Jesus so those are the complicated answers and the easy answer but let's let's keep thinking about so Jamie Oliver he he has this position of celebrity which means he both it would seem feels like he's meant to use his platform to to spread a certain message he's also getting criticized because he's a celebrity and what what right does he have to speak into a certain situation so I'm going to use that to uh, seamlessly move on to Christians who are celebrities, not not Christian celebrities, but celebrities who happen to be Christians to start with. Anyway, I don't think I've disclosed this on the podcast so far, but I'm a Liverpool fo- football pla- <laughs> Liverpool football fan. I played football at school. My t- entire family love Liverpool. So there you go. Now, Liverpool are doing quite well, you may have heard. And uh, on Saturday, Liverpool played Chelsea in the FA Cup final and we won. It was a nail-biter of a game. It went to extra time, penalties. Anyway, point being, Liverpool's goalkeeper, Alison Becker, uh, he's very open about his Christian faith. He actually baptised another Liverpool player called Firmino. Off the back of that win, he posted on Instagram and Twitter, quoting Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He, he used his platform to, to say something about his Christian faith. 
So, Alicia, I know you're not a Liverpool fan, but what do you think about celebrities being open about uh, being so open about their Christian faith in that way? Yeah, I think it's definitely a challenge. He he has more followers than I, and I don't use my social media quite in the same way to be a witness for Jesus. But also, it shows kind of. Sometimes the reason that I don't do that is because I'm constantly thinking, oh, what would people think? What would they say about me? And yet he boldly shares uh, a verse and a passage of scripture to say, this is who I am. This is what I believe in. This is a moment that I can recognize and celebrate Jesus in that. Take it or leave it. So I think it's definitely an encouragement. I do believe that Christian faith should be one that is open and transparent and permeates every area of our lives and society. And I also forgot the wider conversation that I'm also bringing into this is how uh, another footballer who is in the news, and that's Idris Aguirre. He is a uh, Paris Saint-Germain defensive midfielder. Uh, and also a Senegalese professional international footballer. And recently this week, he refused to play in Paris Saint-Germain's home game against Montpellier. Can I just say, as a female talking about football, celebrate Joe and I here. We're going into detail. Uh, and uh, so he refused to play uh, this weekend um, because the Paris Saint-Germain team were wearing their kit with rainbow colours in order to mark International Day against homophobia, biphobia and transphobia. And so the media have gone um, completely uh, static about this, saying that the reason he's doing this is because he's uh, transphobic, that he's against LGBTQ plus rights uh, and that he's not using his platform for good and for wise. And actually, he's in trouble at the moment uh, because the French Football Federation uh, have written to him to ask him again, why has he not appeared uh, and been present uh, on uh, for the game? And so contrasting that with Alison, it shows that using your platform for good or using it at all in football, that sometimes it can be frowned upon, that you're meant to support the right tribe at every opportunity, that you're always meant to be political and that to pull away from a a kind of a progressive narrative is somewhat not welcomed. Uh, So you're either loved or loathed. So there's definitely a challenge in using your platform for good in current society and culture. Yeah, it's so true that, that these footballers who kind of are open about their religious beliefs, they face... Well, I, to be honest, I don't know about Becker. He doesn't tend to speak out about hate he receives or anything like that. But they're putting their sort of selves on the line by being open. It, I think it's easy for me to think, like you said, Alicia, I don't always use my social media platforms, which aren't as widely viewed as, say, an international football star. But I, I can be cautious about what I put out, out on there because I guess... Yeah, I know that people are going to disagree with with some things I believe as a Christian. And I think it's easy to think uh, these celebrities, that doesn't matter as much. Or, yeah, they won't feel that in the same way. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a funny one to get my head around. Danny, any anything you want to add there? Oh well, I, I I'm not a football fan. I don't know much about football. Um, much more interested in uh, Anderson and Broad's recall to the cricket team uh, this week and I had some tech issues so I may have missed part of that that conversation that you were just having but I, I do think it's fascinating I think the the 
internationalization of football means that you have players from across the world, largely South America and Africa, that are used to being much more open about their faith, uh, much more willing to speak boldly about what they what they believe and what's important to them. I, I remember a story, it was last autumn with, I'm going to get this wrong, Neymar, uh, another Paris Saint-Germain player who most £500,000 a month if he had a religious controversy. Um, and I think that included uh, him not who had an ethical clause in his contract that meant that he would receive an additional almost did to this clause, which meant that he would avoid political displaying uh, Christian symbols. He's known to wear headbands or T-shirts that would display that. So actually, ha- has he taken, and I don't know how what his uh, personal views were on this, but was that something that actually he he took that additional money and now has agreed to be quiet about his beliefs or speak about them less so? And I think those are some really opportunity, but it does mean that you have to you have to know and handle that responsibly for watching. And there is a responsibility on you in how you uh, are a witness to what you believe. I think it's an incredible, fascinating uh, dilemmas about what it means to be someone with an immense uh, public following and then to think about how you speak about your faith. It's interesting how Christians' response to this as, as non-celebrity Christians. I mean, we'll see how this podcast takes off, but for now, non-celebrity Christians... <laughs> I, I, I've heard, particularly around cases like when Kanye West kind of declared that he was a born again Christian, I had I heard Christians being really nervous about that. And we actually asked on Twitter today, as you know, loyal fans, we post a poll every week on the Evangelical Alliance Twitter, which is EA UK. This week we asked, "How do you feel about celebrities?" who are open about their Christian faith. And actually, interestingly, so the options were it makes me nervous or it's great. 100% of people are fully for this, that it's great. But we have seen uh, in history gone by people who are public about their Christian faith and then have a huge fall from grace or say things that uh, make us uncomfortable or do things that are questionable. And, oh, it's it, I, I find it, it, it's both great. It's great to have... Again, going back to Alison Becker, him stood on a on a pitch with hundreds of thousands of people watching with a T-shirt which had a cross equals and a, and a love heart. What a witness. But also, I guess that does come with risk. It's a complicated one. It is. I think there is responsibility on how we yeah. steward power and opportunity. I think when we... I say we, when one has a platform, when one has an opportunity to speak, it's it's how we steward that opportunity. And I think I think it's the case for kind of really, really, really famous people who are Christians, how they talk about their faith, but also people who are famous within a Christian world, who have a following, who, I don't know, uh, write lots of books, uh, sell lots of albums if you still sell albums or stream lots of songs people with high profile followings do there is responsibility with that it doesn't mean that people are perfect but there is responsibility and i think how we treat people with power is important i don't think we should be i think we should respect people and respect authority but i don't think we should be deferential to people just because they are in particular positions i think it's vital that people are held to account 
if they are in positions of influence, that they are not able to operate in a way that is beyond question. And we have seen that too many times. There have been too many stories in recent years of people in senior and public roles in, in Christian ministry who, have, who frankly have seemed out of reach of criticism. And I think people have to be able to be held accountable. So I think wherever you have power, it's responsible. there is a responsibility on using that well and remaining... Kind of, open open to accountability but also open to scrutiny about how you're handling that power yeah that's really helpful Danny if you're listening to this and you have a story of someone you've known in a position of leadership as a Christian or a particular Christian celebrity that you think um, represents Christ really well on the public stage we'd love to hear what you think email us cross.section at eauk.org so continuing continuing the theme of people in positions of power, as I said at the start of this podcast, the news has come out this week that there is an MP who is currently under investigation after a rape allegation. Obviously, hugely serious, awful situation. We sort of ummed and ahed about whether to discuss this on the podcast this week, because in some sense, there's not there's not many details to discuss he's the the MP there's been some loose details around his age and how long he's been in office that he's being told to stay away from the House of Parliament at the moment but in the UK we operate under a system of innocent until proven guilty but this story raises some interesting questions about how as Christians we navigate the news how do we balance um, truth and again not wanting to speculate and say things that that might not be truthful uh, how do we balance that with kind of respecting authority, but also wanting to hold authority to account? Danny, do do you think that this MP should be publicly named, kind of in the under under the idea of public interest? So, standard approach for the police is not to name suspects in, in to be honest, in most cases uh, prior to uh, charge and prior to trial, partly because it is to encourage that they have a fair trial. Rape prosecutions are notoriously difficult. Uh, it, is re- like, it is awful how rare it is for people to be convicted of rape. So we probably don't want to do things that would jeopardise the likelihood of someone being convicted. Now, that's not to judge whether or not they're guilty. So I, I, I think on balance, they shouldn't be named. But I understand the difficulties. I also understand the concern of people in a place like Parliament that that person, the allegations were first raised over two years ago and they've been continually in that place. They're like, hang on a minute, people have known that this person has these allegations, but they've been allowed to continue in that role, continue working with people. Are Parliament dealing with uh, their responsibility seriously? Now, MPs' offices are weird, frankly, each MP has its own mini office. Their staff are employed directly by them. And this is something that Parliament is starting to look at and saying, actually, should staff be employed centrally so that there are stronger HR uh, provisions, stronger ways of dealing with complaints so that you can avoid some of these situations? But I think, I, I, on balance, I think it's reasonable that the person is not being named. But I definitely understand the concerns that the person is only being kind of casually asked almost to behave themselves and stay away from parliament alicia what what's your view when kind of stories and speculation are being thrown around how how as christians do we approach that and deal with that yeah it's incredibly difficult in a digital and information age i guess some things that i've 
uh, grown in and learnt is to appreciate that most headlines from podcasts to journalists to news outlets to to commentaries, most have an agenda, they have a viewpoint, they have a key audience. And so they're going to narrow the story through that lens. And so I think as Christians, it's important for us to have a breadth of news outlets that we go to or social commentators that we listen to, whether that's on politics, business, health, international affairs, that we have a breadth of information that we're willing to be challenged in that, so we're not confined to just listening to our preferred echo chambers. And most importantly, to not to gain information, but not to believe it as truth, to always have a filter that the truth that we lend ourselves through it is through the Bible, that is our foundation, that we have whole high regard for that. And news outlets and uh, Christian magazines, all of it, the whole spectrum, they have an agenda, they have a focus or, or a messaging that they want to communicate. And it's important to 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 weigh up, it, is this one factually accurate? And two, is it gospelly truthful? Is is it being accurate to those in the room? So that's something that I, I've been challenged to, to listen and to read a lot more beyond my preferred uh, kind of outlets and also to to be more leaning on a, an understanding and point of view listening and learning rather than this is truth that is being presented to me as I read and listen yeah that's really helpful thank you so on on this kind of issue of positions of power there are some alarming statistics out there so there's one uh, another MP who has already been convicted of a sexual of sexual assault 56 MPs currently have allegations of sexual misconduct against them, which is 8.6 of all MPs. How do we... Do, do we let statistics, as kind of horrifying as that, do they, do they tar the whole image of MPs, of people in positions of power? How, how, do, we, how, how do we navigate that? I think this comes to the question of are we dealing with bad apples or do we have a rotten apple tree? And I think it's fascinating because there is this sense that sometimes people go into a context, whether it's parliament or business or public life or church ministry, with the best of intentions and yet somehow end up failing to live up to those intentions. Now, as Christians, we know the uh, our fallen nature and the way that we are inclined towards sin. And I think we should be very realistic about that. And actually, I think as Christians, there's a sense of realism there that perhaps other people might not have. That doesn't mean we give it a free pass, but we're just realistic sometimes about the propensity that people have uh, towards the seduction of power and the opportunities and, and, and sin. But I think it's also important that we don't write whole swathes of people off uh, just because there are some situations where people do tend uh, to... It does seem that people get... Well, it's the old axiom, uh, power corrupts, great power corrupts greatly. That, it, it does seem to be true. And yet at the same time, we should look to people to hold positions of power and influence, uh, holding their faith and their commitment to God, commitment to being witnesses to Christ in those places. We should hold that really, really firmly because it's through that that we can seek to have an influence uh, for God, to, to be witnesses to his kingdom. So while we're very realistic about the problem, we also need to be very realistic about the hope and the possibility that, that can be seen in those places. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Danny. 
I guess we just have to hold on to the fact that only only truly is it through the model of leadership and power that we're given through Jesus that the positions of power work. He gave us the model of servant leadership, of, of, of giving yourself in leadership for the benefit of those around us. And yeah, we see we see where where that goes wrong without that model in place. We have to pray that 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 model of servant leadership ultimately will prevail. And like you said, we have that hope that we can that we can speak into this conversation. Right. People are going to be talking about this case for weeks to come, I've no doubt. And perhaps we as Christians can use that as an opportunity to talk about the perfect servant leader where there is absolutely no room for abuse of power that we have in Jesus. Great. Thank you so much for uh, being with us, listening to this episode of Cross Section. And as always, thank you to Chris Ringland for all of our post-production work. We will see you again next week. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.